0: Hello, this is Andy from Oral Fixation. Earlier this year, I launched my new podcast, Tracks of Our Queers. You may have given the show a listen, or you may yet to have explored. Each episode, I interview someone who fascinates me on the music that has soundtracked their journeys as queer people. I'm currently recording the show's second season, but there's 12 episodes available now to listen to. You'll find screenwriters and comedians, artists and DJs, charity leaders and community elders, all in the mix. If you haven't checked it out yet, and still have an appetite for queers and music, I'll be sharing previews from the first season right here in the oral fixation feed. First up, the debut episode with Iranian-American screenwriter, author and producer, Abdi Nazemian. Enjoy the snippet, and if you like what you hear, head on over to Tracks of Our Queers now and subscribe. My name is Andy Gott and each episode I'll talk to a guest about one song, one album and one artist that have soundtracked their life as a queer person. My guest this week is Abdi Nazemian, the author of four novels and winner of both the Lambda Literary Award and a Stonewall Honor. He's also a screenwriter and executive producer in film and television, including Call Me By Your Name. I've followed Abdi on socials for years and have loved seeing his adoration for music passion for social causes and honestly being a pretty cool queer parent he's a perfect choice for this project's first episode if you enjoy this episode please subscribe leave a rating or review in your app or even better tell a friend if you really enjoy listening you're very welcome to shout me a coffee via the link in the show notes every penny goes to episode production and keeps the podcast ad free over to abdi Abdi Nazemian, welcome to Tracks of Our Queers. Thank you for having me. (laughs) What is your earliest musical memory? Oh, God. Earliest musical memory
1: is tough. I will say my mother especially was as incredibly musically voracious as I am. So I grew up in a home with music from all over the world. We moved around the world a lot. I was born in Iran. We moved to Paris when I was two, to Toronto when I was seven, and to the suburbs of New York when I was ten. So there was a lot of music from around the world, but my mom really wasn't ever limited in terms of her music. We listened to music in so many languages we didn't understand. But I would say one of my earliest musical memories is I, I was very obsessed and still am with a French superstar named Dalida.
0: Parole, parole.
1: Was not very well known in the English-speaking world, but who is a true icon in the rest of the world. I mean, one of the biggest stars. And I just loved her. She's a big gay icon. And and it was her death. I think she died when I was, I can't remember how old I was, but it was really like my first concept of the idea of death and understanding. Right. it. And she killed herself. So it was a very specific death, but it was just somebody I loved. And then my mom would tell me stories about how once I think I met her on the street. I don't remember this. I was very young. In Paris? In Paris, yeah, because I lived there between the ages of two and seven. And I still, we won't be talking about it as my choices, but I still am really
0: obsessed with French music. Do you remember, it could be one of your choices or it might not be, the first song or album or music-related piece of art which maybe made you feel othered, or maybe even before you knew that you were queer, tapped into that, hmm, I'm a little bit different for liking this. Right. I mean, one thing that I we I said this when I sent
1: my choice is I'm not going to choose Madonna because, you know, I wrote a book called Like a Love Story that pays homage to her and have spoken about her at such length. But she's going to come up because all roads lead mm-hmm. to her. But when I was seven years old, we moved to Canada. The MTV of Canada was called Much Music. You know, at that point, my obsessions were Olivia Newton-John, John Travolta. We loved Greece and, and Michael Jackson, of course. So those were my three touchstones. And when the Lucky Star video played, it was like overnight, I forgot about everyone else. It was just Mm -hmm. Madonna. All the time. So much so that I made my parents take me to the Virgin tour when I was eight years old, which I still can't believe I succeeded in doing. But, (laughs) you know, at the time, I don't know that I understood her as an other, but I suppose even in the way she presented herself in that video, there was this rebelliousness, you know, in terms of the presentation, the fashion, the attitude. And one thing I've been really obsessed with and, you know, and talk about in my book Like a Love Story, and and still am fascinated by is the way that I and so many queer people somehow gravitate to the same art. Like why at seven years old did I understand that Madonna was speaking to me in some way? And why was I, I mean, I was obsessed with old movie stars when I was 10, I would come home and watch Joan Crawford movies and Judy Garland movies. And we'll talk about Rita Hayworth soon enough. But you know, why? Like, why did these queer touchstones somehow speak to me at an age when I didn't even know what being queer was? I was was Iranian. I wasn't exposed to being gay. It wasn't a part of our lives. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what it was. So, but yeah, I would say the the kind of true obsession i had with madonna based on one video that has now lasted decades <laughs> the obsession is um is probably the first time
0: we're about 30 seconds into the interview and we've already talked about madonna and we've already talked about the crux of this podcast what you just described it transcends like you said where you were born in the world even what time of history you were born A lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us do gravitate to these same tropes. And we see things, maybe an artist, that not everyone sees. And that's part of the magic of the queer relationship with music, which is why I'm even doing this podcast, because I'm just so fascinated by it.
1: I am too. And I think the thing is, is with Madonna and with those old movie stars, and, and we'll talk about it with some of my choices, is I think as queer people, even at a very young age, I feel like I was doing what many queer people do, which is leading a double life. You know, like I, there was the inside me that was full of all this weird emotion and stuff I couldn't express or put into words yet. And there was the outside me. And I feel like there's certain people where you can tell, like with Madonna, with Judy Garland, with Marilyn, with whoever, like you can tell that there's a relationship between internal and external life. That's my dog in the background for anyone. Your dog is a queer icon. Welcome to the podcast. He's named after a genre of music the whole family loves, so we agreed on the name. And he's also named after, we got him soon after the Kylie Minogue album Disco came out. And I don't know if you guys, you know, this was very specific to the US election, but when they finally announced that Trump lost, because he didn't lose on election day, it Uh was the day, I believe it was the day that album came out. And me and my kids were dancing to it. And so we always
0: associate the Kylie disco with the end of Trump. So we are here to talk about music. We've already talked about music so far, but I have to address two specific things. You've raised one of them yourself. You're a prolific television film producer and, of course, an author. And a few days ago, I finished your, I believe it's your third novel, Like a Love Story. Yes, that is my third novel. I was aware of this book years ago because I followed you on social media for years. And it really is a love story to 80s New York, queer love, of course, Madonna, through the lens of the AIDS pandemic. And the amount of times I would turn a page or even just close the book and, and go to sleep and I would think, what if I had this book when I was a teenager? And I know I'm not the only one to have thought that. It's a remarkable gift that you are giving To young people in 2022, teaching them about these queer touch points, about the AIDS pandemic, about 80s New York. It's a magical journey for a young person to go on. It really
1: is. I mean, it's wild to have written it because it's so personal. You know, I moved to New York when I was 10. It was the height of the AIDS epidemic. I was an immigrant. I was from a culture that didn't accept homosexuality or expose me to any queer life. But also, it's been wild that the novel has touched as many people as it has. I mean, here in the US, it's taught in schools. I speak at a lot of wow. schools, mm-hmm. classrooms who are teaching it and they they use it as a way to teach queer history, teach about the AIDS epidemic, about ACT UP. I have conversations with young people who are, by the way, like there's so much, you know, I read so much negativity about young people from people who don't spend any time with young people. This next generation is inspiring. They're curious, want to know their history. They care about the queer community's history. It's incredible. And, and there's a whole soundtrack to the book, you know, which is so fun. I music is my biggest, you know. I'm I'm just a music fan. I can't talk enough about music. So to get to share <laughs> music that had an impact on me when I was young and have kids be so receptive to it is it's really cool.
0: Particularly queer people, we don't necessarily have our culture of our forebears handed down to us we often have to go and search it out and that can be part of the fun when we do discover things part of this podcast is talking to people who about when they discovered their icon or their album but it it can leave you know younger people at a disadvantage if they don't have access to that culture And I found that with the book, not only does it depict that happening through characters like Uncle Stephen, but the book itself does that. The book itself talks about all of the icons that you've mentioned already, but Judy Garland, Joan Crawford, Blondie, Auntie Mame. And I can just imagine reading that and thinking, I don't know who Auntie Mame is, Googling it because we have a world of information at our fingertips. And then suddenly someone's discovered their new favorite film. And I I think that's so special. We went through this a lot in the editing of
1: the book with my editor asking, like, you know, young people aren't going to know who this reference is. And we ultimately decided the book doesn't need to explain it. There are, in some cases, with with people who play a huge role in the book, like Madonna and Judy Garland, there will be more explanation. But everyone else is peppered throughout. And if a, if a young person is curious, they'll Google it. And I have had young people tell me, oh, I, you know researched X person because of your book, or I watched Ziegfeld Girl because of your book, or I went and listened to this. I love that about art. If art can lead you to other art, which is what so many artists did for me. I mean, it's certainly what Madonna did for me because I grew up, you know, we it was analog days. It was pre-internet. You didn't have exposure to everything that was out there. So, you know, artists were like a portal. They would lead you to their references, to their
0: inspirations, and you would then go down this journey with them. The other monolith of queer culture you worked on, I have to ask about, is, of course, Call Me By Your Name which you worked on as an associate producer, correct? Yes, associate producer on that
1: film, which is obviously an honor. I worked at a production company that was involved in the movie. I stupidly did not visit set because it was quite far from where I live and, and seemed at the time. I mean, it wasn't a necessary thing, but I did get to... You know, be a part of the the journey of the development and be at the festivals with yeah. with the film and see the the response to it, and it's been really well,
0: beautiful. Are, were you aware at all going into it as the film was being created of the possible cultural impact it might have?
1: No, absolutely not. But never, I mean, there's never anything I've been involved in where I where I think that way. I mean, and especially with "Call Me by Your Name," you know, look, I'm jaded. I'm I'm older. I mean, anyone who my book knows exactly how old I am. You make a movie that's that queer and also that, you know, it's artistic, it's intellectual. It didn't seem to me like something that was going to have the impact. It's a miracle, you know, and so it was truly, I don't know, very moving to see what happened with that film because it, it really inspires hope in the artistic process. You just never know when you're working on a project what the life of it will be. You really don't. So you can be surprised in in bad ways, which is more often than not you are, and it's devastating because nobody sees your work or reads it, and it just ends up in some pile. But sometimes that's not the case, and that happened with Call Me By Your Name, and it also happened with Like A Love Story. You just don't know when something's going to move people.
0: Okay, your first track. Wow, the track that you've selected. What did you pick and why? So I picked the track Put the Blame on Mame. <laughs> And they had the
1: earthquake in San Francisco back in 1906. Which is not actually sung by Rita Hayworth, though let's say it is. She was dubbed. It's from a film called Gilda, which for anyone who hasn't seen it, they should run and see it because it is truly one of the great films of all time. It's very emblematic of the film noir genre, which is one of my favorite genres. It's from 1946, the movie. For anyone who doesn't know Rita Hayworth, I hope they do. Maybe they know her from the Vogue rap. I don't know. But she, you know, she was one of the great, great movie stars of all time. And very unique movie star in that she had an ethnic identity that was whitewashed very famously. And I think there was a real interplay in her persona that you could really feel. She was known as the love goddess, as the sexpot. And in Gilda, she plays really, I think, the most, I mean, I've never seen anyone be so beautiful in a movie. I mean, the way she's photographed, the way she moves, the way she dances and put the blame on Mame, it's just, I don't understand. It's human perfection. Put the blame on Mame, boy. Put the blame on Mame. But there's this real, you feel this sadness in her. And she had a horrible life. I mean, abused by her father, put through, you know, hell by the studios. And you feel this this core in her that's that's lost, that's that's almost like trying to get out of the persona. And that is something that I think at a very young age, this was my favorite movie when I was 10 and it remained my favorite movie for most of my young years and is still up there. But I mean, I watched it over and over and over again as a kid, partially because of her. I mean, she was one of my favorite stars. And I really identified with her. And I think partially, and I didn't realize it at the time, the movie is basically a bisexual love triangle between two men and and Rita. And it's very obvious now as an adult that that's the case. And everyone from Martin Scorsese to film scholars have discussed this. But at the time, I couldn't have known that I was 10 years old. It's like, why does this movie impact me so deeply? And now it's like, well, of course. But another reason I picked that song is because the song is used twice in the movie. It's used once in a very polished version where she performs this very famous striptease which is you know one of the most famous scenes in film history and then it's performed once in this kind of acoustic private very sad version put the blame on me